The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. For today's episode, I am joined by Gareth Evans of Progressive Equity for a conversation with James Crawford, UK Managing Director of Naked Wines. Naked Wines is a direct-to-consumer wine retailer that demystifies wine and strips back its complicated supply chain to its most naked form. Following a career at Diageo, James joined Naked Wines in 2014, exchanging big company security to join a tiny, unprofitable business that was capital-constrained. James helped navigate Naked onto the stock market via reversal into Majestic Wine, allowing Naked the opportunity to focus on its attractive growth path, particularly in North America. In today's conversation, we learn about how it is possible to grow intrinsic value in a business without the need to focus on short-term profitability, the significance of finding the right investors for your strategy, why it isn't necessary to be a qualified accountant to be an effective CFO, and importantly, why you cannot buy a corkscrew in a liquor store in New York. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, James Crawford. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start by getting some background on why you took the decision to join Naked Wines after a long career with Diageo. I got a call about the job at Naked, and it was a really interesting time where we were doing a lot of work in the M&A team, working with entrepreneurs, trying to buy little brands, and actually doing some good structured thinking about how entrepreneurs work, how we as a big corporate should engage with them to make them excited. And that had made me quite excited about the smaller company space in general. I'd also reached a phase of my career where it was clear if I wanted to continue to progress at Diageo, I would need to do four or five different jobs each for a couple of years in order to think about becoming a senior FD of a business unit or something. And that felt like a very long period of time to commit to a set of roles, some of which didn't sound that interesting to me. Some of them would have probably been you know, corporate reporting or internal audits, etc. So when the chance to be the FD for an entrepreneurial business came up, I thought I would bring the theory we had been studying and the people we've been engaging with on the M&A agenda at Diageo and become one of them. And I thought it would be a great way to get all of that experience that those five jobs would probably give me, but in a much, much quicker way. And that was what really led me to take the plunge. And you very quickly went from a 36,000 people company where everything was somewhat abstract to looking at the bank balance at the end of the day and uh, signing off the payroll. But that was part of the joy of it, was kind of learning business really from the ground up and feeling very, very hands-on and then working with a very fast-moving entrepreneurial team rather than the the rather slower but well-governed processes we had at Diageo. So what was it specifically that drew you to Naked Wines and what makes it such a compelling opportunity? I think the real key was understanding that people don't need to be as deeply enthusiastic about wine as most wine enthusiasts are to really enjoy wine. And actually, there was a much more authentic and, in my mind, natural way to enjoy wine that was to understand the winemaker who made it, the artist that is the winemaker, on a kind of personal and emotional level. And actually, in doing that, you could also cut a lot of the unnecessary cost out of the industry where today a wine might be made by an individual, sold to an agent, sold again to a retailer before it gets sold to somebody who actually drinks it. 
And along the way, the story of that wine gets diluted for all the different agendas that sit in that supply chain. And I think Naked just said, look, we can strip all that back and we can actually say there's a set of customers who want to enjoy wine and know a bit more about wine and be more engaged about wine than buying at the supermarket. And there's a bunch of winemakers who deserve the recognition. And if we can act as the intermediary to connect those two parties, we can create a really efficient business that resonates with people emotionally as well as delivering kind of great functional value. So was it the love of the wine or the love of the business model that attracted you? A little bit of both. Diageo had a really uncomfortable relationship with wine. I remember at one point, I think it was Larry Schwartz who was running the US business at the time, but it's like, we've got a billion dollars of assets and they're making us $30 million a year. And, you know, that's a little bit the nature of the, certainly the production end of the wine business is it's very asset intensive. It's challenged by agriculture. It has to get a product which is a naturally fragmented product because people care about vintages and great varietals, etc through an industry structure, in particular in the US, which has a couple of very narrow points, which is really the distribution tier, which is generally two or three big distributors in each state. And Naked just seemed a very elegant solution to that, which was we can actually use our customers to generate capital because they're going to subscribe with this £20 a month, is or was in the UK. We can deploy that into the supply chain to make a winemaker's life easy. And in doing that, we create engagement and differentiation for the customer base. So it was a very elegant solution to what I saw as the strategic and financial challenges of the wine industry. And I do love wine as a product. It was the awkward thing about working in essentially a spirits business when you loved the uh, unloved tale of the portfolio. Now, James, we first met shortly after Naked had reversed into publicly listed Majestic in what I would characterize as a bold move by what was a traditional business, well understood by its shareholders, typically used to lowish growth, but a steady stream of dividends. Now, Naked, on the other hand, was a fast-growing but unprofitable, disruptive business. Can you just talk us through what happened next? You could spend all day on this story. Naked needed more capital to grow past the threshold in the US in particular around scale that it needed. And it was very clear that the unit economics in the US were as good, if not better, than the unit economics in the UK. But you just got to hit a certain scale to cover an overhead base, etc. The owners didn't have that capital to provide. So I always kind of say on day one, I joined the business and Rowan, the founder, said, you know, we know that we need some money. And by day three, it was like, yeah, actually, we need this money quite quickly. And I think the first 13 months was entirely about raising that money and selling to Majestic. And Majestic was looking for. I think a burst of inspiration in the business. They'd had some challenges kind of getting the economics of store rollouts consistent. They probably, in our mind, over-invested in stores and the returns on capital for the last 20 or 30 of those were minimal. They didn't feel that they were where they needed to be in terms of their e-commerce offering and the management team were running out of ideas. So credit to the board at the time, they said, well, Here's naked. It needs money. We need ideas. They seem to have a lot of the ideas that we need. We have the money that they need. Let's bring these together. And that's what we did. And I think, yeah, Rowan, obviously the CEO, became the CEO of Majestic. And yeah, we embarked on a ambitious set of challenges, which was to both reinvigorate Majestic alongside continuing to drive the naked business hard, and in particular to reach that critical mass in the US. And that was 
I mean, a huge learning experience and a huge number of different challenges. A challenge as to how you focused your own time and energy. Challenge as to how you brought this disparate set of investors on a very different journey. And certainly, you know, if I had my time again, we'd probably have been bolder in terms of the investor messaging from the off that this was going to be about investing in growth and investing into the US and not continuing to run a profitable business with a steady stream of dividends. Because I think that probably meant that we always had too broad a church of investors who all wanted different things. And as a result, you know, we ended up a little bit caught between two stools where we were trying to throw off a dividend each year whilst investing in the US with a business which had borrowed money to buy naked. And it felt like you were getting pulled in different directions. I think I'm right in saying that neither you nor Rowan had actually run a physical retail business previously. How much of a challenge was that? It was a big challenge, albeit, you know, we obviously inherited teams that were familiar with the different dimensions of that. So, you know, property was entirely new to me and Rowan, but we did both know how to evaluate a big set of capital investments and work out which were performing. I think some of the bigger challenges with the sizes of the teams and getting the communications right to the teams and having multiple business units with very different cultures. So the principles you use to communicate across 1,500 people in stores need to be very different to communicating to 50 to 100 people who are all in one office all day, every day, seeing the same things. And what drove your decision to eventually sell the Majestic business? First and foremost, it was around focus. So it was clear that the shift away from physical retailing was continuing to impact Majestic. That, in our opinions, what needed to happen at that point was actually a bolder strategy of extracting capital from the store portfolio, recognizing the degrees to which stores overlapped in terms of catchments and rationalizing. And that was going to be a very big piece of kind of resource and emotional kind of and physical kind of time focus. And it was basically the same time as we'd done a deep dive on the US business with the board and demonstrated that the opportunity in the US was multiples in terms of scale versus what the opportunity could be for the Majestic business in the UK. So you kind of weighed it down to, look, we might be able to plus or minus you know, 100 million of value with the Majestic business if we get this right. But if we actually get the US business right for naked, we might be plus or minus 500 million of value. So there was the question of focus, and then there was also the question of money to do that. To actually get that 5x valuation for Naked US would require us to really aggressively invest in customer acquisition, marketing capability. And to do that would require us to starve the Majestic business of capital and cash. But actually, to generate the change that was needed within Majestic, you would need to spend a lot of money on store closures, etc., to drive that change. So there was a financial angle to it as well. And remember that at that point, Majestic was still indebted, having borrowed money to buy naked. And banks would have wanted profitability. But actually, when you went through that kind of change, you'd have been reducing profitability. So to balance that, you needed to make profits from naked. But that's not the way that you'd unlock the growth of naked. So it didn't seem possible to do everything financially or from a focused perspective. And hence, we took the view that the place we could drive the most value for shareholders was going to be out of getting naked right, and we should release the capital from Majestic in order to do that. 
you mentioned the, the shareholders there. You described earlier that you had a sort of a fairly disparate range of shareholders previously. Have you found that that's narrowed down appreciably since the change? And do you feel you've now got a bunch of shareholders who, who share your values and aspirations and are prepared to sort of see the business losing money in certain areas as you push for growth? I think the sale of Majestic was the triggering event. And I think I said at the start, you know, in hindsight, I think we could have been bolder about the messaging around how we plan to run the business and how we plan to invest in growth. When we sold Majestic, it suddenly became abundantly clear what the shape and the future of the business was. And that was the triggering event for a number of those kind of income-focused traditional Majestic investors to exit. And yeah, we found a very, very supportive shareholder register, fairly internationally focused. There's a number of big American investors, big German investors, as well as investors from the UK, who, you know, I think you can count up the kind of top 10 or 15 and see 50, 60, 70% of the shares held by people who fundamentally believe that long-term investment behind good unit economics into a very significant total addressable market is a really good investment case. And they have the patience and belief that that's the right thing to do for many, many years. As long as you're continuing to grow the intrinsic value of the business, the short-term profitability is not a material concern. Can you just describe how your business benefited from COVID and lockdown? So we saw a huge surge in business in two ways, right? One is that we saw a lot more new customers come into the business and try us for the first time. And then we also saw our existing subscribers shopping more frequently. I think you know, all of the indicators and a lot of our internal debate and external debate was around, you know, will all of these new customers stick around and behave like old customers have? And you know, what we've shown people in our results has been that essentially, yes, these new customers did look a lot like old customers. And actually what we saw for Naked was people trying online wine purchase for the first time, especially in the US, right, which is not a business I'm as close to as I used to be. But a lot of people in the US just didn't know you could even buy alcohol and wine online. So it's been a kind of category changing event for Naked as much as it's been a one-off purchase for people. And because we run a subscription business, you know, we should see the benefits of that uplift in scale over the medium term as well. You've mentioned how the US is the big opportunity for Naked. So could you just outline for us what the peculiarities are of that market in terms of alcohol distribution and how it impacts Naked Wines and its growth potential? It's always been one of the things I've really valued about having spent five years living in the US and actually living on the state line between Connecticut and New York and then living in Florida for a while is you do realize how convoluted the system of regulation is and you know I, I remember walking across the state line from connecticut to new york to look for something and then being reminded that in new york a liquor store can only sell products with alcohol in so you can't buy a corkscrew in a wine shop in new york because it doesn't contain alcohol when you sell mixers if you sell kind of a margarita mix you have to make a version with like one percent alcohol in it so it can go into the liquor store because otherwise it has to be sold in the grocery store when you live with these kind of regulations for four or five years it becomes common to remember how difficult and challenging this is and it's been really useful for me as a uk-based cfo of a business where america is the biggest value opportunity to just have that awareness but yeah what seems crazy to us here in the UK, because we're so used to the way our market works, 
is just very natural to the American consumer. It's one of those kind of big aha moments where you realize you just have to communicate to people that this is even possible, let alone that you're better at it than some other people. So now you're running the UK business. Can you just talk us through the day-to-day role and what key metrics do you look at on a weekly, monthly basis? I try and split my time between, I guess, the kind of day-to-day operating and performance management and a set of longer-term strategic goals. It's been pretty hard for the last year because actually a lot of the day-to-day changes and the unexpected growth through COVID essentially meant that that balance was a bit different. But I'm certainly still learning and getting better at keeping my eyes on the medium to long term as much as the short term. If I kind of walk you through a week, you know, Monday morning, quick check-in with the team, which we use to understand the week ahead, the challenges we've had and what we're all doing about it to make sure we're joined up. Our financial weekends on a Monday. So on Tuesday, just after lunchtime, we'll have a review of the week just gone. That will look through a pretty rigorous set of numbers. We'll look at you know how many new customers did we get in? What are our models telling us in terms of whether they were good quality or not based on things like very immediate attrition rates? And we have a AI-powered scoring model, which tells us whether we think these are likely to be good customers. We'll look at whether or not the subscribers we have ordered in the way we expect. You know, if we're pushing out our monthly free bottle email, where we invite people to try a bottle for free, normally of something new. You know, did we get the response we expected to that? How many orders did it generate? How big were those orders? What kind of value? Have we seen the expected retention rate of our subscribers? Have there been any spikes up or down? And then how are we doing operationally? So we'll run through a fairly detailed checklist that will cover, did we hit our SLAs for inbound customer service requests? Did the orders go out of the warehouse on time? What was the success rate in terms of delivery? What kind of feedback have we gotten from people? What kind of level of wine range do we have in stock? Do we have any supply chain issues or material items out of stock that we need to get focus on to? And that tends to be the kind of focal point for the weekly trading cadence. And then the other days of the week, I'll do things like, you know, I visited Yodel last week, our main courier in the UK. I had a quarterly business review with their account management team and also visited their main distribution depot that all the naked cases go through and watch them whiz around their automated sorting facility. I might go and visit our warehouse. I might spend some time with our customer service team. And then interspersed with all of that, I make sure I catch up with all of my team one-on-one at least every other week to help them with any specific issues. So Yodel have got enough HGV drivers for you, have they? I think it's been in the news that Yodel have just come to an agreement with their union about HGV rates, which they believe will assure the capacity that they need over Christmas. But yeah, everyone is fighting for the same drivers, whether it's to get the stock into the warehouse or to get it back out again. There's a challenge this Christmas. We think we're fair set with it. Yeah, I'm thinking of retraining. <laughs> Marketing spend is obviously critical to the business. Can you just talk us through how you approach marketing spend and how do you determine which channel to use? So Naked has a very kind of codified investment philosophy where there's a cost for a customer and there's payback we want on that cost. We used to talk about a 20-year payback because we have some very long-tenured customers. We moved that to a a five-year payback period And we basically seek to get double our money back within five years, which because it tends to be front-loaded, tends to be a fairly high IRR on that money. We 
essentially evaluate all of our marketing channels across that same success metric. We do a range of different marketing. The business was very much founded on partnership marketing with a lot of vouchers going in other online parcels to trigger people to come to the website and hopefully test a case. We expanded that massively into digital marketing about four or five years ago. We built a dedicated team actually across Naked and Majestic at the time. We also use things like direct mail. We use affiliate marketing. We use some native platforms. We are beginning to test more above-the-line type approaches, which gets more challenging then in terms of how you measure that payback because you have to get to media mix modeling rather than just direct attribution models. And we do it all through the lens of test and learn. The essence of the marketing is you know, keep trying things, keep measuring things, be clear on the success criteria, and to the extent to which you can spend more on marketing that meets your success criteria, spend it because it's good money to spend and you're building the intrinsic value of the business by spending it. That's really interesting to hear you talking about the focus that you bring there to the marketing and I guess the sales operations. I wonder if you could talk a bit more broadly about some of the technology that you use within the business and not necessarily naming names, but how you use that technology and I guess the kind of partners or suppliers that you find provide the sort of things that a modern e-commerce business needs and how you interact with them and you know how you sort of run those relationships. I'll start by kind of explaining. So the way that we've organized the business is we have a centralized tech function that supports three countries. So I, as the UKMD, end up being kind of a customer of the central tech function. We have been on a journey over the last couple of years, moving from a kind of very centralized and home-built <laughs> set of systems where really the kind of CEO and CTO would generate the pipeline and prioritize the pipeline of opportunities to a more disaggregated model where we've, we've kind of broken the platform into different products, as we'd call them. And yeah, we will have, I think, in the next couple of years, a system which is probably moved from 80% custom built in-house to more like 50-50. We talked a lot about the US being the biggest opportunity for Naked Wines. Does Naked inevitably become a North America and a US business? It depends what you mean by a North American business. I mean, right now, our CEO and CFO are both based in the US. That decision was taken with a view to, you know, if you're going to drive value out of that market, you have to have your senior leadership there and in tune with the market. You know, the new chairman is a US-based individual. If you're probing, a, does the listing move there? A, the answer is I no longer know, having given up the range of the CFO role 10, 11 months ago. I always used to say that it definitely has to be a consideration at some point, but it's not a straightforward question. There is something very positive about the AIM listing that Naked has in the UK in terms of it doesn't overburden you with regulatory requirements. It gives you flexibility to operate in a certain way. The trade-off between whether there's a better valuation and a bigger investor pool that a US listing would unlock and the costs of making that happen was not a piece of work we ever did fully rigorously in my time. I'm sure it will be done at some point, but I know not when or where. But yeah, I also like to tell people my business in the UK is about the same size as the business in the US right now. So, you know, roughly speaking, we're a 42, 40, 18% split, US, UK, Australia. And that means, you know, we're not just focused on the US to the expense of everything else. We have a 
very good growth opportunity still in the UK. I fundamentally believe we can grow the business in the UK in double-digit rates for the next four or five years. There's a lot of headroom here. And I want to keep reiterating that message to people because I think it's important that we aren't just a US business. I think it's good that we have a balanced portfolio of countries. And, you know, that's my intent is to keep it that way. <laughs> but I would say that is the UK MD, right? What about opportunities in other geographic markets beyond the UK, the US and Australia? We're not sure. Certainly, I talked about the predication of the split from Majestic being around focus. When you have a multi-billion dollar addressable market in the US and you're only generating a couple hundred million dollars of revenue there, actually driving focus in that US market seems like the better use of time and energy than trying to work out how do you create a multi-language, multi-market platform. It's not as easy selling alcohol as it might be for software to just spin up an operation overseas. You have to get licensed. It's a regulated product. You typically have to have in-market presence, companies, etc. I think there's quite a lot of challenges to broadening the geographic scope quickly, and there's a lot of upside to go for in the U.S., you mentioned having held the CFO role, and I think I'm right in understanding that you're not actually a formally qualified accountant, even though you've had a lot of financial experience. I'm just interested, did that worry you personally? And did people seem concerned that you didn't have what I suppose is widely seen as the normal qualification that role? Or do you think that you brought something a bit different to it? A little bit of all of the above. Look, it was certainly something I was very aware of when I was first asked to take the role. And actually had a really good conversation with a couple of members of the board to say that I feel a degree of personal, is exposure the right word, or kind of vulnerability in the, I don't have this qualification that a lot of people would expect me to have. I got some great kind of counsel and coaching of James. The role is not about you deploying your accounting skills, right? But the role is very much about you deploying your personal energy, intellect, focus, process, knowledge, etc to make a finance function work. And actually that got me pretty quickly to a place of understanding. I will always be cautious and invest in the team around me to make sure that the technical part of the role is well-maintained, is dutifully carried out. But actually that freed my kind of personal energy and bandwidth to become a broader business leader than I suspect maybe some CFOs are, at least initially, because once you knew the technical part of the role, you had a good team around you and you had the right process with your auditors and your board to make sure the quality was good, you could invest your time thinking about bigger strategic issues, thinking about investor relations, thinking about how you manage performance in a really insightful way. I think initially it made me nervous, but it never really helped me back. And actually, over time, I think I saw the benefit of having a more rounded set of experiences maybe than some of the more traditional routes into that role. Do you have plans to supply more English wines into your supply mix in our new post-Brexit world? We are always looking for new wines and English wines are generating more and more interest. I think, yeah, worth saying that the bottle of sparkling we put in our big Christmas case last year was an English sparkling wine. We sold 85,000 bottles of English sparkling wine in the course of a weekend last year. It's not like we don't have English sparkling wine on the menu and in the range already. And very enjoyable it was too. I was going to come on and ask about what's in the Christmas box this year. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you yet, actually, but it all will be revealed in the next couple of weeks, Jeremy. Okay. 
the reality is that in terms of base demand, right, whilst there's still kind of a fair amount of noise about English wine, actually, when you list it at the prevailing prices, which it's manufactured at, and the reality is that, you know, the climate is changing, but you still have generally higher costs in the UK to produce a bottle of wine than elsewhere. People do still tend to shop the international range more than they shop the UK range. We will do what we can to support UK wine. As I say, you know, when you buy 85,000 bottles at a time from a producer, that really helps their UK business. But we'll do that in a balanced way and we'll let the data drive us rather than a specific purpose to be the champion of the English wine industry. We'll not not champion it. We like it. But we recognise that demand does also sit elsewhere. One thing I often get asked about naked wine when I talk about it is whether you'll run out of small artisan wine producers to supply your growing customer base. You absolutely don't. There are literally thousands and thousands of talented winemakers out there, a lot of whom are sadly unable to get their wonderful product to market effectively. I look at it the other way, to be honest, which is as we grow in scale, our ability to take chances without damaging the business increases our ability to offer a bigger opportunity to people who are interested increases. Our ability to fund more innovative projects increases because a smaller proportion of our customer base have to be interested in something for it to be a viable opportunity. And so the complexity of that is that you end up needing better customer segmentation tools to work out how do I put the right offer in front of the right person. But I'm sat here today with a UK business that probably has 350 wines on the website on a given day, sources about 600 in a year. Actually, I'd love to be at the point where we were sourcing 1,000 in a year and had 600 on the website, but I'm very clear that we just have to help customers find the ones they're interested in. You get an interesting mix of feedback where some customers think having a small range is great because it makes it easy for them. Some would like you to have a bigger range. The answer is I need to find a way to personalize my proposition for each of those customers to give them what they want. And I can find as many esoteric wines as people want or as many popular things like a a Kiwi Sauv Blanc as people want. But certainly there's no shortage on the supply side of interesting and exciting wines for our customers. What are the latest trends among your customers? What types of wine are they choosing to drink more frequently? What regions of the world are producing wine that your customers are seeking or enjoying particularly at the moment? There's always the latest inverted commas hot trend. I think what I've seen systematically is there's definitely been an increase in rosé drinking towards year round, definitely seeing more sales of Greek wines. There's a set of countries that our customers have asked for. I, I see Georgia mentioned a few times, but it's still kind of in the anecdotal space. We're seeing some format kind of expansion. So Naked has launched its first four or five box wines as permanent additions to the range. That brings with it a sustainability benefit. Glass and the weight of glass and transport is a huge driver of the CO2 production in the wine industry. Whilst box wines do create a little bit of plastic in terms of that inner bladder, actually the overall carbon footprint of a box of wine is significantly lower than a glass bottle. We're doing some innovation in the format space. We're running kind of tasting packs, which I think we've seen across the industry, people finding formats to get small samples of wine to people's houses and then run a virtual tasting. So I think there's a combination of both, you know, style and 
geography expansion, but definitely format innovation is front of mind at the moment. James, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for a fascinating conversation. And hopefully we'll get the chance to uh, have another conversation at a later stage. Maybe we could even do it over a glass of wine, Jeremy. That would be fantastic. Even better. Thank you for uh, inviting me to uh, come on your podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 